We've just turned a corner together. We've turned from the season of epiphany as we journey with Jesus in his ministry and remind ourselves of who he is into this season of Lent. Now, as we journey with Jesus toward the cross, this rhythm of the church year, of liturgical seasons, it forms us as God's people. It gives shape to our experience of worship. And in our worship, it reminds us of the shape of our lives. We do not only walk with Jesus toward his suffering for our sake on Sundays in our worship together, but on Sundays in our worship together, we are reminded that we walk with Jesus in a life, in a life shaped after his for all of our days. This is what we're doing together. We're reminded that the way of discipleship is the way of the cross. And to follow Jesus is to do as he does, giving of himself for others. So in Lent, we remember that we give ourselves for those who Christ has called us to serve. And we confess again the ways that we have not always done so. When we have struggled to understand Jesus' life well enough to see how it is actually a call for us and for our lives as well. But it's not only the liturgical season that we've turned this corner in. We've also made a turn in our journey through Mark's gospel that we've been reading together. We've just passed the middle of the book, turned from chapter 8 on Ash Wednesday to chapter 9 today. In Mark 8, the gospel writer presents really the hinge of the whole book, the thing upon which the whole story turns. Peter's confession on behalf of the disciples that Jesus is not John the Baptist raised, is not Elijah, is not just one of the prophets, but is actually the Messiah. You are the Messiah is the climax of this book, is the center focal point. And having heard this confession from his disciples, Jesus shares the truth of his coming suffering the reality of his coming death, and the promise of his resurrection. And Peter doesn't get it. In fact, Peter doesn't like the way Jesus is talking at all. But Jesus doubles down and insists that not only is the cross going to be his way, but it's going to be the way of all who follow after him. The focus of Jesus' ministry shifts from what we've seen up until now to the things that will prepare him for his passion that will shepherd his disciples along the way that they might eventually understand his ministry as well. That's a quick recap. If you weren't able to join us on Ash Wednesday, but you've been following along through this book, I'd really encourage you to go back, listen to the short reflection which was offered on Mark 8. It's on our YouTube channel tomorrow. It will be on our SoundCloud. Find some time through this week to reflect on that turning point in this book. And if you're just joining us on this journey now, if maybe this is your first Sunday with us at Knox, this is an excellent moment to jump into the story in progress as we unpack what Jesus' prediction of his death means for his friends and means for all of us. Last Sunday was actually the Feast of the Transfiguration for much of the church, when many churches would have reflected on the text that we heard today. 
But I like that we missed it last week. I like that we're engaging with it today after Lent has started because this story occurs after Jesus has set his mind on his passion, after he has directed his disciples toward the cross. It feels like looking at this text today just after Lent has begun will give us a unique vantage point to understand the depths of what's really happening here. So immediately following Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus explaining about his suffering, death, and resurrection and inviting others to know the way of losing, which will end up finding, the way of dying, which will end up rising. After this has happened, we have this story that we heard today of the transfiguration. Now, I've said the word immediately, which in terms of the events recorded in Mark's gospel, It's true. This happens immediately following those things. But surprisingly for Mark, he does not say immediately. It seems to be his favorite word for introducing introducing a new thing. Immediately this happened or that happened. He uses it so consistently among all the action. But no, for once in a strange turn, Mark does not say this transfiguration happened immediately. But rather, he says it happened six days later. An odd specificity for Mark. It's possible that this is an allusion to the rhythms of Sabbath rest, that this is another Sabbath that has come. But it's more likely that this is meant to be a dramatic and dynamic hint at what's about to happen. Because in the book of Exodus, Exodus 24, 16, if you want to look it up, Moses spent six days on a mountain in a cloud. Six days on a mountain in a cloud, and then God's voice spoke from the cloud. And as we've just heard, Moses, a cloud, God's voice, all of these things appear again on this mountain. Mark seems to be drawing our attention back. Something special is going to be happening. So immediately in the text, but six days later in Mark's chronology, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. Mountains are known to be places of special spiritual significance in the history of Israel, as well as places of wilderness and solitude, and they were alone. Jesus is not usually alone. The crowds often follow him, but for this he ensures that he is. The text then says quite plainly, there he was transfigured before them. Transfigured, changed from one form to another. For this moment, Christ's humanity is drawn back and his divinity is revealed and pushed forward, brighter than the brightest thing whiter than the whitest thing, marvelous and clearly apart from anything these disciples had seen before. And what's more, Moses and Elijah are with him. Both of these two figures are wilderness prophets who had mountaintop revelations of God. Moses on Mount Sinai, Elijah on Mount Horeb. And now these three disciples join in that great tradition with Moses and Elijah before them, join this new mountaintop revelation of who God is as the glory of the sun is revealed. 
But it's more than about sharing a story about mountaintop revelations of God. The disciples are being pointed toward the truth that Jesus completes the ministry of these former prophets. Jesus will lead God's people to a new promised land, the truer promised land that Moses will only see because of Christ. Jesus will reveal a way of overcoming death, not in a chariot of fire and horses to be whisked off to heaven as with Elijah, but that death might be overcome by death once and for all, that death itself may yet die. Jesus fulfills the ministry of these great former prophets. These are seen to be the greatest figures in the religious history of Israel. And this is a tradition we should be familiar with. Even our own sanctuary places in the center of that set of windows there, Moses and Elijah, the central figures of the Old Testament. These great prophets hold a special place in the history of Israel. And these are the ones who are seen beside Christ in this revelation. It's about what they represent first. Moses is the one who gave the law. He is the author of the Torah. And Elijah is the greatest of the prophets. And the prophets, or the Nevi'im, were the second section of the Hebrew Scriptures. You had law, Torah, and prophets, Nevi'im. And so you have the giver of the law and the greatest of the prophets here together pointing to Christ. As Jesus will say explicitly in Luke's gospel, all the law and the prophets, all the canon of the Jewish scriptures speak to him, point to him. This truth is revealed here metaphorically in the presence of Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets are all concerning Christ, all a precursor to his life and his ministry. But there's still more here. This mountaintop gathering is more than a completion of the ministries of these old prophets, more than a metaphorical indicator of the truth that God's plan was always in and about the person of Jesus Christ. So too, on this mountain, we witness through Christ that death and life are brought near to each other. How is that the case? Moses, you might remember, died. Died on Mount Nebo, died and was buried at Mount Nebo, though the scriptures say no one knows where his grave is. Yet this one who went to the place of the dead is here with Christ. The one who is in the grave is seen with the living Lord of the grave. Conversely, Elijah did not die. Elijah was taken up into heaven, still living, and here basks in the glory of the Lord of the heavens. Jesus is Lord of the grave and Lord of life, Lord of Sheol, the place of the dead, and Lord of heaven, the realm of all life. Here we see these two extremes coming together, centered on Jesus. It's no mistake that these two, giver of law and greatest of prophets, one with a lost tomb and one with no tomb, should be present with Christ. Their presence speaks to the truth of his claims that his work will include both life and death. 
That's what he was just talking about. Of course, this happens right after he predicts his death and resurrection. This is affirming that prophecy. But Peter misses this. He's excited about the prophets, yes. But he's not thinking about how their presence connects with Jesus and what he'd been saying earlier that same week. Actually, it seems like he might be trying to push those thoughts as far out of his mind as he possibly can. Once again, it's Peter who speaks up. Peter who speaks first. He doesn't know what to say. They're all frightened. But Peter's personality is such that even when he doesn't know what to say, he has to say something. So he announces it's good for them to be there, which is true. And he asks to be allowed to set up three shelters, one for each of these figures. Perhaps Peter is grasping the significance of mountaintop encounters with God as he offers to make these shelters, these tents. Perhaps he's thinking there will be three new tents of meeting now on this mountain where God will meet with his people again, that this will be the culmination of all things here and now. Let him build the places where the prophets will reside, where God will keep counsel with his people, where justice and mercy will come forth, from which all things will finally be set right. That must be what's happening. It seems Peter is still desperately clinging for ways that the ministry of the Messiah may not involve death at all, may not be what Jesus has just announced to him. He's using this vision of the glory of Christ to pursue his own theological ends. He's shoehorning this into the way he expects and wants the world to be. This vision is meant to affirm what Jesus has already told them. Yet they find ways to make it say, well, just about anything else. Isn't that so like us? Isn't that so like who we are? It seems to me that we can have the clearest picture of what God is calling us to change, what Jesus is inviting us to do or to be, and sometimes we will just work our absolute hardest to understand things differently. We'll twist the scripture to suit our inclinations. We'll interpret our senses in times of prayer as though, as through as many lenses as we need to, to arrive at the conclusion we'd prefer rather than the answer that God may actually be given us. Jesus is saying to these disciples that he will suffer and he will die, but that he is the Lord of all creation, that death and life both answer to him and he will rise and he will fulfill the law and the prophets. He will reconcile all things, even life and death itself. And Peter finds a way to imagine that he's reinstituting tents of meeting. Anything else. Because the whole death business doesn't really make sense to Peter. That can't be what the Messiah is about. Jesus doesn't need to reply, doesn't need to ask as he did only two chapters earlier, are you so dull? Though that might be the question we're now asking. Because God intervenes, a cloud appears. 
Clouds are a familiar symbol of the presence of God. The cloud appears and it covers them, a tent which Peter did not build. And a voice comes from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Jesus is affirmed. In case the transfiguration wasn't clear enough, God affirms Jesus, Jesus uniquely. Not Moses or Elijah. No, these are my sons. Jesus is the unique Son of God. Then, after this affirmation, instruction. Instruction that Peter obviously needs to hear, but instruction that if we're being honest, we need to hear as well. Listen to him. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus who has the love of the Father. Listen to him and know the Father's love for yourself. Stop coming up with your own answers and avoiding his. Stop trying to make Jesus say the things that you want him to say. Stop selectively listening to make him fit into your categories, to make his ministry in your life make sense with the plan that you've already mapped out, to make his ministry through your life to your neighbors, classmates, and coworkers into what you would have it be. Because your hope for your salvation is meager compared to Jesus's vision of you as you were made to be. Your desires are smaller than Jesus' desires for you. Your plans for your life, they're lesser than Jesus' plans for you. Jesus works and prays even now to make you and me as he is. And this is for our good. That like him, even what we may give up could be recovered that even what we may lose can be found, and even what is dead can be brought back to life. This is his ministry. This is his way for you and for me and for us all together. So listen to him. Know his way and accept it for yourself. God says, listen to him. And then suddenly there is no one else but Jesus. And they leave the mountain. Jesus gives them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until he had been raised from the dead. Jesus is telling them that they're not allowed to share about this experience until they understand it. Don't talk about this story until you get it because you don't get it and you won't get it until you see that what I've told you is true. The story must be connected to its meaning, and he knows that they won't realize its meaning until he dies and rises again. In case you're concerned, Peter does seem to eventually get it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells this story again as he says, it's not some myth, some cleverly devised story that we've come up with or believed. And he shares as this evidence of Christ, this firsthand knowledge, this experience on the mountaintop. 
seeing his majestic glory, the voice from heaven shaping his understanding. He names the majesty of Christ as the glory and honor given by the Father. Peter has come at last to understand the way of the Messiah, a way of death which overcomes death, a way of losing your life which leads to finding it. As we sang together, a way that assures us that all that is lost can really be found, that new gardens really can spring up from old ground. He now understands the very things which Jesus was speaking of. He understands the glory that he saw, glory that was veiled by human flesh, and flesh which was an action of lowering himself to serve us even before he was lowered to the grave itself. This is the Son of the Father, one who would lower himself for our sakes, and in him the Father is well pleased. The glory of Christ is revealed in his humility, his service to us, and the Father desires that we should listen to him and find in him glory of our own, adoptive sonship, welcome into the kingdom, not through the ways we would have it be done, not through the dwellings that we would build for the prophets, not through our own schemes that we'll devise to advance our imaginings of God's kingdom, but simply in submitting to and participating in the life of Christ as he reveals it in our lives in listening to him and trusting that in him all of the scripture is really fulfilled. In him, life has been brought to the grave. And in him lies the best fullness for all of our days. Jesus Christ is the beloved son of the Father. Let us listen to him and go in his way all for the sake of his kingdom and to the glory of our one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen. I want to invite you into a time of reflection. And there aren't really questions this week because the instruction of the Father, the voice in the cloud, is listen to Jesus. And so I'll pray and I want to invite you to listen to Jesus. Maybe you can consider what has Jesus been saying that you've heard but you didn't want to hear and you've been trying to figure out how it's actually something else. Hear it again. Listen to him. And maybe you can think about what is he saying for you today to make your life more like his, to reveal his glory in you. But really, I just want to give you a minute to listen to Jesus now and to invite you to listen to Jesus through this week and this season, cultivate this practice. Would you pray with me? Jesus Christ, beloved Son of the Father, in you all of the Scripture is fulfilled. In you death is overcome by life, in you, everything that is lost will be found. And so we come to you, obeying the voice of your Father and our Father, desiring to listen to you this day, 
to listen to you more closely in the season that's ahead, to learn your way and to walk in it. So in these moments, we pray that you would speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. 